welcome to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello and thanks for listening to the first ever episode of Inside the IC. On this show, we'll explore some of the biggest stories in the intelligence community. We'll bring you exclusive interviews with leaders in the IC and expert analysis on the challenges intelligence agencies are confronting. In today's show, we look at how the National Reconnaissance Office is trying to take advantage of a fast-growing commercial satellite market. To explain how the secretive agency is opening up to industry, I spoke with Pete Mund, director of NRO's Commercial Systems Program Office. Pete, it's great to have you on. Oh, thank you. And just to start things off, can you give us some background on the role and the history of the Commercial Systems Program Office? Because this is a relatively new organization within NRO, right? Yes, uh, the the office itself was uh, set up uh, a few years ago, really to take on the role and responsibility on behalf of the NRO to procure commercial imagery. The commercial imagery is a, a very important part of our, our overall architecture. It's a hybrid architecture that includes both large large satellites, small satellites, national satellites, uh, and and increasingly commercial satellites to all provide uh, you know an overall set of uh, mission capabilities to the Department of Defense, the intelligence community and a wide variety of our federal civil partners as well. So our office was really created to uh, to take on that role and responsibility, uh, work with our commercial providers, uh, let the contract, and uh, and really procure the uh, the imagery, the geoint, and uh, and increasingly other phenomenologies as well to to support, I'll say, the commercial contribution into that larger architecture. Right, and and you established this office, correct? Like it was it wasn't there before uh, you came along. What was it like establishing this new office? What was NRO doing with commercial providers before this office was established? Yeah, the NRO has had a, a relationship with commercial providers for for quite a long time, but uh, but really with the designation of the NRO as a, as a primary acquirer of commercial imagery for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, uh, we recognized that uh, that we needed a, a formal office and and some formal structure to really follow follow through with those responsibilities and and and, and procurement efforts. Uh, so, so really, I, I really led the, the transition of those efforts from our partners over at NGA and brought those efforts into the NRO, um, certainly in terms of uh, transitioning uh, existing contracts and ongoing efforts with, with current and longstanding providers, but then also looking at, uh, at new emerging vendors, uh, new emerging companies, uh, new entrants, new phenomenologies. And we're very excited to be moving forward on one of those efforts. Right. So as you just teased out there, you know, the the office, uh, your office released a broad agency announcement framework last year, and you've just made some awards. Can you talk a little bit more about that BAA and the awards you just made? Yes, absolutely. We're very excited to announce that we just awarded five contracts to, uh, to, to, to five commercial radar providers, that being Airbus US, Capella Space, ISI US, Predisar, and Umbra. Those contracts really are focused on a number of efforts, first and foremost, to understand the capabilities that these commercial providers can bring to bear, first uh, for, from a modeling and simulation effort. But then as those providers have, have satellites in orbit, uh, we look forward to, uh, to really validating their performance assessments and, and where appropriate starting to, to purchase imagery and, and data, commercial data, and other radar types as well. Why the BAA framework? What advantages does that give you specifically to working with commercial providers? 
Well, we found the BAA framework to be a, a very agile um, contract vehicle to enable us to, to move forward quickly, uh, get, our, get our requirements out there for industry to respond to, um, do the, uh, the sets of analysis and source selection in an expeditious manner, and, and then really start to, to have those contracts in place to where we can leverage and, and begin to, to grow onto that. Not to say the a BAA framework is a solution for everything. Certainly, there are contracts where other, contract, other vehicles would be more appropriate. But, uh, but really for this effort and, and, uh, and, and these types of efforts with new entrants, uh, emerging, uh, emerging phenomenologies, uh, new entrants in, in the commercial remote sensing area, uh, we found the BAA to be, uh, to be very appropriate and, and highly agile. Got it. And then so for these five companies, are, are they entirely new to NRO or, or some, have you worked with some of them before? And, and, and what are the next steps under this initial round of awards? So we're very excited to really have, have established these, uh, these first five contracts with these commercial providers. Although we did have a, a contract in place with Capella uh, beforehand, that contract really was focused on, on our architecture and our interface to the commercial providers to make sure that we could, uh, we could interface with commercial radar providers as the time came. Here, we're really looking at the capabilities of the commercial providers themselves, uh, so we understand uh, what they can bring to bear and how we may take advantage of that, along with establishing the wherewithal to actually purchase those products to, to the war, for the warfighters, for the end users, to, to, to really extract some utility there, along with all the other assessments uh, that we'll be doing. What's the imperative today to working with commercial space providers? The, the NRO obviously has a lot of its own satellites, but commercial space business is, is, of course, exploding, as some people would say, uh, in, in a good way, obviously. And, and um, you know, what's the imperative for an organization like the NRO specifically to work with these companies where maybe it wasn't necessarily there 10 to 15 years ago? Absolutely. Uh, as you said, the, the commercial sector really is uh, moving forward at an incredible pace of innovation, and it is uh, really important for the NRO to be able to, to harness that innovation and speed and agility, along with the, the capabilities of U.S. industry generally in order to, to meet our mission needs. Um, it really hasn't been about uh, the NRO's capabilities in isolation forever. It really has been a, a group effort, and, and commercial providers really are providing more and more capabilities as part of our, our larger mission set. It truly is part of a hybrid architecture that, that really we need to continue to establish, uh, improve upon, and really continue to meet our needs in the future as, as the mission needs continue to get more and more challenging. Are there specific barriers to entry that you've identified for commercial companies that you're trying to, to address? And, and if so, what, what are they and how are you trying to take them down? Yeah, in the, in the BAA, we went out of our way to establish a very low barrier to entry uh, for these initial contracts. Um, so the companies wouldn't necessarily even happen to have to have a, a commercial satellite in orbit. Certainly, there are things we can do when uh, only when a company does have a satellite in orbit, but, uh, but we structured it to, to really cast uh, quite a broad net. Uh, and we're very happy with uh, the results of the RFP, how things came out, and we're eager to uh, to learn what we can for the commercial providers, uh, both in terms of their modeling and simulation, as those companies uh, have satellites in orbit, we're eager to get our hands on some of that data to, to validate uh, their performance assertions, as well as uh, start to procure, procure imagery, uh, other types of radar data as well, really for our mission and to better understand uh, the mission utility that that data can bring to bear. One other item I'll, I'll talk about and highlight is the, the cybersecurity posture. Cybersecurity is critically important to everything that the NRO does. That's no different here. Uh, we did go out of our way to start at a, a fairly approachable level that, uh, that the commercial providers uh, you know, would not be hard-pressed to meet. 
but uh, but actually put those hooks in place to be able to accelerate and enhance their cybersecurity posture to to better meet our needs in the future. Yeah, sure. That's I mean that's something that the Pentagon and and the national security community, the government community writ large, is struggling with is balancing the need to work with industry with cybersecurity requirements. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about how maybe in this specific instance you've struck that balance. Do you provide resources to companies to help them get to a certain point if you decide, hey, we actually want to take you further down this path? You know, is it contingent on the data you're sharing with them? We've established a number of tiers of cybersecurity trust, really, that uh, that we look to leverage with the, the commercial providers. And it, it extends uh, from a very low barrier to entry, uh, something that we would call an unverified provider, that uh, that really is the bare minimum that a company would have to accomplish to, uh, to, to really hold a federal government contract, to an industrial standard provider that is more leverages a lot of the best of breed of, uh, of U.S. government standards, from NIST standards to the DOD CMMC posture, uh, all the way up to what we would consider a, a secure provider that, that does leverage some formal formal authorization and accreditation for parts of their architecture. So we do uh, provide uh, resources to, to help them down that path. You know, we've articulated the parts of their architecture, you know, what parts of their architecture would have to, to meet what requirements. Part of our contracts actually include a, uh, a request for a CONOPS to have them start to think about uh, how to move from one level to another, because for us to, to take more and more advantage of these, uh, of these companies and the capabilities that they can bring to bear. Yeah, obviously, the more trust we can have in their architecture, the, I think the more opportunities uh, we'll all have in the future. Got it. And is this something that, you know, is this being used for the first time as part of this BAA or is this part of a broader framework that the NRO has been using more broadly? This is a part of a broader framework. It's the same structure that we used for our electro-optical commercial layer or EOCL procurement. It's a framework that really was developed uh, jointly with the NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, um, and they're looking in a very similar vein for their analytic structures as well. And, and that provides a good segue into talking about the elect- electro-optical commercial layer program. What's the latest you can share with us on where that competition stands? Well, that competition is currently under source selection. Uh, we are hard at work at it and uh, and expect to have awards in a few months from now. Not a whole lot more I can say about that, though. Is it fair to say that you're moving kind of from a sole source contract to multiple sources with this one? Yes, we do intend to award multiple contracts out of this procurement. Got it. And this is kind of connected to how in, in 2017, NGA turned over responsibilities for commercial imagery procurement to the NRO. And I guess that was probably one of your office's first big projects, right, was was taking this on and, and developing this this competition. Yeah, absolutely. That really was the, the big initiative. Obviously, uh, we worked hand in hand very closely with NGA and the rest of the user community to make sure, you know, with the transitions, there was no interruption to, to any sort of operations. Uh, that went very, very smoothly. But then, of course, our, our attention focused on the next generation of capabilities as uh, more and more companies come into the marketplace, uh, potentially provide new and, and different capabilities. Uh, we really were excited to to take a fresh look at the industry, uh, revisit our, our requirements, uh, which is very much a, a community-wide process, and approach it with a uh, buy what we can but build what we must uh, sort of mentality. So uh, if we can look to to commercial providers and commercial capabilities to, to meet some of our requirements, we'll look there first to, to do that, and only build national systems to meet those needs uh, where we have to. So really that uh, that began the process uh, of, of EOCL, the electro-optical commercial layer, and, uh, and resulted in the source election that we're currently underway on. 
And, and so are there other avenues for commercial space industry, you know, already in place or, or coming down the pipe that beyond the BAA that we've already discussed in this, this EOIR competition that's under source selection that, that people should be aware of? Yeah, at, uh, across the NRO, there are a number of ways that industry can develop a relationship with, uh, with our organization. Uh, first and foremost is the Director's Innovation Initiative, or DII. That gives us access to non-traditional developers that are doing groundbreaking research or exploring cutting-edge technologies, all of which are relevant to our mission and have high payoff potential. Although since 1998, we fielded 6,000 proposals from 44 states. A third of the submissions came from vendors entirely new to the NRO, so that's very exciting. And a quarter of those projects were approved and funded and continued after the first year. Additionally, we have uh, an inter enterprise commercial consortium that takes a, a fresh look at the marketplace so alongside uh, many of our IC partners. And our partnership with Incutel to, that matches needs with nascent technologies out there in industry. And then finally, we also have the IMPACT program, a risk-tolerant, cost-effective approach for experimental payloads, novel technologies, and miniaturization. And, uh, and of course, the Green Light program, a pathway for non-traditional commercial partners to test and mature new technologies through on-orbit experimentation. I'll add, uh, you can learn much more about those at the NRO.gov website, uh, NRO.gov Innovate. So quite a few different avenues. And, and on that Director's Innovation Initiative, that's... That's been running, I think, for the better, I think you said since 1998? Yes, it's been a great program. It's been very successful for the NRO, and it's been very successful for those industry partners that, uh, that have participated. Uh, many current improvements on NRO systems began years ago, as uh, originally as DII research and development projects, and that's why we've been running it and continue to run it for over a quarter, or nearly a quarter of a century. Obviously, the NRO is not the only organization in government looking at the commercial space area can you tell us about your work, perhaps, with the, the broader Defense Department and intelligence community in this area? Are there, is there a lot of overlap? Are you kind of talking about leveraging each other's capabilities at this point? Um, where, where is that at? Yeah, well, um, certainly the intelligence community is a community, so we work hand-in-hand -hand with our partners. Uh, every agency, every organization has a specific role and responsibility, but we all learn from each other as well. So, you know, it's been a great team effort, um, and, uh, and as much as we're moving forward with uh, commercial providers, we have many other partners that are eagerly awaiting the, the results of our contract and the data that we'll be able to provide. Um, they're really excited to, uh, to potentially add their own analytics, uh, you know, look to exploit the data, and, uh, and, and really see what the potential opportunities are uh, in the future. And really, that's going to lay the groundwork for, you know, a new generation of, uh, of commercial radar providers that will be able to leverage long-term as part of our larger architecture. That was Pete Mund, director of the NRO's Commercial Systems Program Office. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at how the intelligence community's spending on cloud, AI, and other technologies is evolving. You're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday. In this next segment, we dive into the IC's technology trends with Angie Petty, a senior principal analyst with Dell Tech. I spoke with Angie about findings from her recent report detailing how intelligence agencies are increasing their investments in cloud computing, big data analytics, cybersecurity, and more. Angie, thanks for joining us. Sure, thanks, Justin, for having me. So you did the hard work of looking at the intelligence community's IT spending, which is no easy task, considering that a lot of budget documents 
all the budget documents really with the IC are, are classified. And so you have to pull from, from different sources, right? But what's the forecast for ICIT spending going forward? Are there any specific growth areas that we should be watching? Yeah, absolutely. We believe the contractor addressable amount of IT spending in the intelligence community is going to grow from $10.5 billion in FY21 to $10.9 billion in 2023. And that's a 2% compound annual growth rate. And we think that's very much driven by IT modernization efforts. So we're seeing them uh, invest in solutions like data management and cloud computing and big data analytics, uh, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. Just for some inside baseball here, how, how do you pull together these numbers? Uh, kind of where are you sourcing these from? Because obviously you're, you're not you know, talking about classified things, obviously. So how, how do you kind of pull these things together? That, that's a wonderful question um, because as you mentioned, much of this community is classified. So there's not rich data sources. Uh, So what we do is we look at everything that's publicly available. So top line budget numbers for the National Intelligence Program, the Military Intelligence Program, um, every little nugget that we can pull as far as dollars. And then we're also um, trying to attend every webinar that we can, um, every conference about the intelligence community specifically related to IT. We're looking at what press coverage there happens to be agency websites, um, agency strategies. And we take all that information and try and try triangulate the numbers and the growth forecasts. Oh, very interesting. That, that seems like a lot of work. And so <laughs> you talked about some of the growth areas. Are there any areas where you might be seeing spending actually going down? So we're not really seeing any areas where we're seeing a drop off in spending, but we are seeing some areas where it's uh, flat and uh, somewhat tempered. And those are areas of traditional hardware and software spending. And it's much like the rest of the federal agencies. Uh, A lot of agencies are, as part of their IT modernization, they're moving to more as a service uh, offerings and solutions rather than buying traditional pieces of hardware and software that they ha- they have to maintain. We still see spending in those areas. We, we see it flat because they can't just flip a switch and move everything to the cloud. And they have very rich needs for things like hardware storage because there's huge amounts of video and satellite images and things like that. And then they're also um, knowledge management, data management is also a big area for the IC. So we do still see some software spending and hardware spending as they're moving to the cloud, but it's uh, at a much uh, slower pace than we would have seen in years past. On artificial intelligence and machine learning, can you give us some more insights into perhaps where the IC agencies are focused on that front? Because that's a big push across the, the military and intelligence community. Right, absolutely. And one of the biggest programs is at uh, DIA, the MARS program, which stands for uh, Machine Assisted Analytic Rapid Repository System, uh, which is quite a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, So most people refer to that as MARS. And what they're trying to do is ingest massive amounts of data and use machine learning to analyze that um, in the cloud. They released their second minimum viable product in March of last year. And ultimately, the program will replace their uh, 
20-year-old modern integrated database system. So that's one of the biggest areas where we're seeing machine learning and artificial intelligence. But we're also seeing other agencies invest in those as well. What they really want to do is to empower their analysts and take away a lot of the um, manual efforts needed to monitor the intelligence uh, data flow. Got it. Yeah, that's that's definitely a trend, getting humans away from doing kind of the more menial tasks. I also wanted to ask about cybersecurity. The president just signed off on a new national security memorandum that essentially tells defense and intelligence agencies to kind of follow the cybersecurity executive order tenets that were laid out last year. What's the forecast that you're seeing for cybersecurity spending in the intelligence community? Cyber is, is one of the, the largest categories of IT spending that we're seeing in the intelligence community. And we're predicting that it's going to grow from $3.2 billion in FY21 to $3.5 billion in 2023. And the um, IC agencies have a, a, a dual role in cybersecurity because not only are they protecting their own networks and their own data, but they're also responsible for protecting national security systems and weapon systems, critical infrastructure, as well as uh, corporate hacking. And you're right about um, Biden's memo um, telling the intelligence community that uh, they also have to abide by the cybersecurity executive order. Um, in fact, they appointed NSA as the national manager for national security systems. So they can, NSA can order updates and fixes to those. Um, and in fact, within 60 days, agencies there who operate national security systems must update plans to implement zero trust architectures. Yeah. Are you seeing any increased investments in areas that are kind of specific to zero trust architectures at this point? Because of the classified nature, we don't have, you know, the nitty gritty of what each agency is specifically doing. However, we do see in a lot of their strategic documents, even prior to the most recent memos that have come out um, from the administration, that they were headed towards zero trust anyway. Uh, for example, the commercial geospatial intelligence strategy uh, directs those agencies implement uh, zero trust architectures. And a uh, soon to be released new eyesight strategy also directs agencies to implement uh, zero trust. And what's that eyesight strategy? Can you remind our listeners? It's the um, intelligence community information technology environment. And uh, that started in 2012, and it's evolved over, over time. iSight was launched in 2012 to employ uh, cloud solutions across the IC to help enable their, their missions. Um, and it, it evolved into two uh, what they were calling epochs or phases. So the first phase, uh, or epoch one, was from 2012 to uh, 2000 or FY 2018. Um, and that was the first IC-wide, um, making the first IC-wide cloud solutions available. And it was uh, with two different um, contract vehicles, if you will, C2S, which is managed by the CIA and uh, awarded to Amazon Web Services. And those cloud uh, environments were made available in 2014. And the second part of that was the IC-Gov Cloud which was designed and built by NSA. Um, and it's the IC's big 
data uh, analytic environment that can be used by all of the IC organizations. And then in FY18 and beyond, they've been calling that EPOC2. And that's where we see some of the newer awards um, being called the Commercial Cloud Enterprise, or C2E. And C2E consists of uh, two different phases as well. The first, we've already seen awards for the uh, CSP portion, which is Cloud Service Provider. And that was awarded in November of 2020 to AWS, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, and IBM. And then there's going to be a separate award for Cloud Investment Multi-Cloud Management, or CIMM. And that's to um, award a system integrator to help manage this complex cloud environment, and then also to help IC agencies pick the best choices from the C2B CSP contracts. It sounds like that system integrator will be in a pretty important position. Is that just going to be one contract to one company, or do you have any idea on how that CIMM contract is going to play out? We haven't been able to get our hands on uh, nitty-gritty specifics. Um, I have seen it mentioned as a system integrator, um, but uh, you know, since it's classified nature, we really don't know for sure how that's going to pan out. But I knew, do know that to date it's been difficult because these five um, cloud providers usually are competitors, and uh, they, it's sort of difficult to incentivize them to work together to say, no, maybe so-and-so solution is better than my solution for this particular need that you have. Um, so I know that the system integrator is going to help with some of that. And then before we move on, Justin, we were talking about iSight. Um, the Office of uh, the Director of National Intelligence announced last month that they were going to be releasing a new iSight strategy. Um, and iSight started sort of as uh, just the uh, cloud enablement, if you will, but now it's it's becoming the entire IC, IT environment. So the new strategy is supposed to have information on security as well as employing emerging technologies like AI. Um, so I've been closely watching ODNI's website to, to see uh, when this strategy comes out and I, it hasn't been published yet. Got it. We will have to keep an eye out for that. It sounds like it'll hold a, a lot of answers about uh, the future of IT and the IC. And another part of the report delves into how the contract size and length are both on the rise for IC, IT contracts. What's going on there? So from what we can see, and this is just uh, somewhat anecdotal and subjective because we, we don't have a huge database of all the contract awards in the, in the IC, but what we've been able to see um, from uh, publicized awards is they do see, especially in IT, they do seem to be a longer length as well as very high dollar value awards. Um, I had mentioned a little while ago the CSP C2E awards uh, back in November of 2020 um, awarded to the, the five um, cloud service providers. Uh, that is uh, publicly uh, announced as being potentially tens of billions of dollars over 15 years. Uh, there was another award uh, by DIA in March of 2021 for $12.6 billion over 10 years to 144 different vendors for IT and technical support services. And that set of contracts is called Site 3. And then another one that I will uh, mention is NSA's $2 billion award to HPE in September for high performance computing 
as a service. And uh, that's also a 10-year contract and they're calling that Green Lake. So it just appears that um, from, from our standpoint, from what we can see, that they're going for longer term contracts um, that seem to be a very high dollar value. That was Angie Petty, Senior Principal Analyst with Dell Tech. Earlier in the show, you heard from Pete Mund, Director of the Commercial Systems Program Office at the National Reconnaissance Office. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.